Hi, everyone. Welcome to Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. I am your host, Jareth Rossman. Today's a super special episode because it's the first week of Sober October. And I think it's only fitting to keep with that theme. So what does that mean? Well, first, let me quickly explain what Sober October is for anyone that may be unfamiliar. Now, if you're a big podcast listener like myself, then you've probably heard of Joe Rogan and have listened to his podcast. Now, most people think he created the idea, and while those people aren't wrong, they technically aren't right either. Joe is definitely credited with popularizing Sober October a few years back when I think he and three of his comedian buddies bet themselves that they couldn't go the whole month of October without alcohol. But technically, Sober October was actually started around 2014 by a fundraising campaign for Macmillan Cancer Support, which is a UK-based charity that provides support to people living with cancer. Now, obviously, the primary goal was raising money, but the movement also emphasized the importance of taking a closer look at our personal relationship with alcohol. Now, it has evolved over time to become many things to many people, but I think the general theme is to challenge yourself to go as many days sober in the month of October as you can, and I would encourage each of you to do the same, and I'm also going to tell you why I think you should give it a shot, no pun intended, but I'm not going to tell you my reasoning just yet, you'll have to keep listening. Now, last week I mentioned a few topics that I wanted to touch on this week, And if you didn't listen or don't remember, I'll reiterate those topics again very quickly. First, I want to talk about my initial couple of weeks in my sober living home. If you thought rehab was interesting, then sober living will blow your mind. Next, I want to give you more insight into how I became an alcoholic while trying to answer a very popular question that I get asked. What actually constitutes being an alcoholic? And lastly, I want to talk about the importance of setting small, achievable goals, especially when you're new to recovery, and why small goals are so critical to the Daily Five. So as always, let's get started. Now, I've mentioned this before, and I'll mention it again. I was really, really nervous leaving rehab. I had just spent 34 days in a mostly controlled environment with very minimal influence or distraction from the outside world, and it's like, okay, there's the exit, good luck. Now, thankfully, my parents were there with me, and I had an idea of where I was headed because something that I didn't mention before is that I had actually toured the house I was going to about a week before leaving rehab. The house manager was nice enough to pick me up from treatment and bring me to the house so I could meet some of the guys and he could get a feel for whether or not I'd be a good fit for the house. But even with my parents there and some familiarity with where I was headed, I still had a tremendous amount of fear inside of me. Now, on the surface, I've got my freedom back along with 34 days of sobriety, so I should be ready to conquer the world. But in reality... I've got years worth of carnage and destruction to clean up, and I knew that this would be a long, hard, difficult journey. And I think that is the biggest misconception that alcoholics and addicts have when they leave treatment. You're told how amazing your life will be without the drugs and the alcohol, but I don't think you're fully prepared or equipped to immediately start cleaning up the wreckage, which is why so many people relapse within hours of leaving treatment. Now, I think I have a solution for that, but that's for another episode. So back to my fears. Now, not only did I have this major burden of cleaning up my life on my mind, 
but I also had minor issues that I needed to deal with. And to you, the listener, they may seem trivial, but to me, in that moment, they were monumental. One of those issues I still reflect on to this day, for some odd reason, was my phone. If you listened to episode one, you may remember me saying that I had stopped answering calls or texts for about a month before going to the hospital. So now it's probably 60 or so days since I've looked at my phone, and for some reason, I just couldn't bring myself to turn it on when I first got out. I just kept thinking of all the people I had ignored over the last couple of months. Friends, family, clients, co-workers, my boss, bill collectors, literally anyone and everyone. And I knew a lot of people were trying to get a hold of me. The reason I knew is because they started reaching out to my parents while I was in treatment. I remember on Sundays, which I think I forgot to mention that family could visit for a couple of hours each Sunday while in treatment. But anyways... On Sundays, my mom would give me the latest progress report on all the people that had reached out to her trying to figure out what was going on with me. I was big into the party scene back then, to say the least, so I can only imagine what was being said amongst everyone. But she was doing her best to keep my situation private at that point. And of course, there were certain people that had to know, but for the most part, People were just speculating about my whereabouts, so she just wanted to give me the opportunity to tell people on my own terms, which I honestly greatly appreciated. Now, like with everything else, there's good news and bad news. The good news is that I did eventually charge my phone and turn it on. The bad news? I had over 1,500 messages, at least a couple hundred phone calls, and probably another 50 or 60 voicemails to check. And boy, were there some interesting messages to read and voicemails to listen to. Everything from, I'm really concerned about you, to, dude, you're late for the fantasy draft. Where the hell are you? Coincidentally enough, the fantasy message was sent on the day I was checking into rehab. Anyways, all of that information may seem insignificant, but I'm just trying to give insight into how even the smallest things seem paramount to an alcoholic or addict when first entering back into the real world. Okay, so back to that first day. I get released, and my parents offered to take me to any restaurant I wanted before going to the sober living house. First thing that pops into my head? Nope, not a steak, not a hamburger, but sushi. So, we get to the restaurant, and I pick up the menu, and my eyes immediately go to the sake. And I'm like, wait, I can't order sake. Wait, not only can I not order sake... But I can't order it ever again, or any alcohol, at any restaurant, ever again? Oh boy, what have I gotten myself into? But then I started quickly replaying all of the techniques that I had learned in rehab to deal with my triggers. The primary one, which I still use today, is to simply replay all of the negative consequences drinking created in my life. The health issues, the financial issues, the bad decisions, the anxieties, the depression. The list for me goes on and on and on some more. And something else they taught me in treatment was that the decision to actually drink is made way before the action is taken. And you have roughly 90 seconds before the action to actually change that decision for the good or the bad. So to this day, if I ever start thinking about how nice it would be to throw down a screwdriver on the golf course or maybe have a glass of wine at dinner, I quickly turn to that same advice and go on my merry way. So anyways, 
We order food, and honestly, I don't have much of an appetite at this point because, again, my anxiety is substantial at this point. We leave the restaurant and finally make it to the house. Now, my house had a very good reputation in the sobriety community, so something else I didn't mention before is that I actually didn't have a bed going into the house. There was a waiting list at that point, but the house manager surmised that I was taking my sobriety seriously when he first met me, so he actually made an allowance for me. Yay, lucky me, I get to sleep on the couch for the next week or so. But honestly, I didn't mind. I was committed to doing what I had to do at that point. Now, my parents hadn't seen the house yet, and while it wasn't all that bad, I think my mom was taken aback slightly when we first got there. It's the old fast food commercial scenario where what you see online or in the commercial isn't necessarily what you get. The house was a touch on the older side, and when I say a touch, I mean probably 50 or 60 years old, and it was massive. I think it was just shy of probably 4,000 square feet, but believe me when I say every square inch of that house was occupied. There were probably 18 guys when I first entered the house, and I don't know how many bedrooms there were. All I know is that it felt like people were sleeping anywhere and everywhere, probably because they were. And that may sound a little exaggerated, but just to give you an idea, most bedrooms had at least two beds while some had three, which doesn't seem all that bad. But when I saw a guy open a hallway closet door and lay down on a mattress in that hallway closet, I knew it was going to be an interesting 90 days, and suddenly my little spot on the couch didn't seem all that bad. Now again, there's more good news and bad news. The bad news, my car was still at my house back home. The good news, a buddy of mine from treatment who was about my age, young 30s, was living at the house and this guy had a car. Now, generally, this wouldn't be a big deal for most people, but we aren't most people, and sober living isn't most living arrangements, but it is a lot like being back in high school, especially with the car situation. Like, all the coolest kids in the house were the ones with cars, except this wasn't high school, and these weren't kids, these were grown men. And to give you an idea, out of the 18 or so people at the house at that time, Probably only half of them had a car, and I distinctly remember in that first week, at night, getting dressed in my nicest flat bill hat and best pair of joggers so we could hit the town, in that car, except instead of hitting the town and going to dinner and then maybe a bar, we were hitting an AA meeting, then heading to a McDonald's or a Dairy Queen after. And while today that would seem like a very basic and standard evening, Back then, it was all very new and fun and exciting in a really strange way. But, unfortunately, the reality of recovery isn't always fun and exciting. That same guy, my buddy with a car, had actually OD'd within his first couple of days being released from treatment, which is why he ended up at my house. If you remember, in a previous episode, I mentioned that counselors rarely recommend you going back home directly after treatment. Well, this guy did go home and overdosed and almost died. But instead of going back to treatment, he came to my sober living home because, again, it had a good reputation. And this same guy stayed at the house for probably about 45 days before leaving again. 
And unfortunately, about 12 months after that, I received the news that he had OD'd again. But this time, he wasn't as lucky, and unfortunately, they weren't able to save him. And I hate to have to share stories like that, but if you know me by now, you know that I think it's important for you to understand the true reality and severity of recovery, because not all recovery journeys are created equal or have a happy ending for that matter. Now, with that being said, I think it's time to shift the focus to the second topic I wanted to address, what led to my alcoholism and what actually constitutes being an alcoholic. And as always, I'll speak on each question independently while doing my best to show the correlation to both of them, at least as it pertains to my life. So, what actually led to my alcoholism? Well, I've actually thought about the answer to this question many times over the last five years, and there always seems to be a slight variation to my own answer each time I think about it. And although there seems to be a slight variation to the answer, there also seems to be a very common denominator to each of those variations. But before I tell you what that common denominator is, I want to explain something about my life, especially my early years, to give you some context. And what I'm about to say may come off as pompous or egotistical, but I promise you that is not my desired intent. So you've heard me say in previous episodes that I grew up relatively poor financially and I don't know who my biological father is. But honestly, outside of those two facets, I actually had a fairly charming life growing up. I mean, I always made good grades, I was always pretty good at sports, I always made friends pretty easily, and to top it off, I was actually a handsome little chap growing up, much more so than I am today. And I had a mother who loved me unconditionally and would make any sacrifice necessary to make sure I had everything in life that I needed. Things just always seemed to go my way. Now don't get me wrong, I studied and worked hard and faced plenty of obstacles growing up, but at the end of the day, if I really put my mind to something, the desired outcome always played out just how I envisioned it, which is great. Until it isn't. And therein lies the problem. I was so used to things just going my way that when I started to experience what I call adult adversity, I wasn't fully equipped to handle it. Here's what happened. I'm in my late 20s and I just get a big promotion at work. Like huge promotion. Especially for someone my age back then. And about a month after that, I got engaged to my girlfriend at the time. I remember Joseph asking me about my five-year plan around then, and I was really excited to explain it to him because I had all of these major milestones at my fingertips, buying a house, starting a family, and continuing to progress in my career. You know, living the whole American dream idea. And I just knew it would all play out like I had planned because it always had in my life. Boy, was I in for a rude awakening. Within months of all of that happening, I went through a devastating breakup. Now, I'm going to spare you the details out of respect for everyone involved, but when I say my world was rocked, it was rocked. Suddenly, my life was turned completely upside down, and for the first time ever, there was nothing I could do to fix it, nor did I know how to fix it, much less how to deal with it mentally and emotionally, because again... 
I had never been through this type of adversity before. And something else you should know about me is that I had always had a fear of negative consequences growing up. So for the most part, I always walked the straight and narrow. But not anymore. Not this time. I was angry and pissed. And I was going to start living life on my terms with complete disregard for consequences. Screw consequences and screw a five-year plan. And in that moment... My alcoholism journey began. Now, don't get me wrong, the groundwork was laid way before that exact moment. I had always liked to drink and was a pretty heavy drinker whenever I would go party. But this would be different because this time I was going to put my mind to it. I was going to be the best partier and drinker this town had ever seen without disregard for anyone or their feelings. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, when I put my mind to something, it usually gets done. And believe me when I say, I did not disappoint. Now, obviously, I didn't become an alcoholic overnight. It was a gradual process over a three-year period. I like to tell people the progression happened over three stages. First, it was social. Then it became a solution. And then it became a dependency. And the dependency stage is the one you want to avoid at all costs. I mean, if alcohol becomes a solution in your life, then you've got a problem. But once you cross over to the chemical dependency stage, you enter into a completely different world of consequences. Which is a perfect segue into my second question mentioned earlier. What actually constitutes being an alcoholic? Instead of giving you my own personal opinion, because personal opinions will vary across the board, I decided I would read the answer directly from the big book. And quick note, I received feedback that some may think I'm referring to the Bible when I say the big book. I'm actually referring to what you could call the Bible of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the title on the cover is just that, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm going to take direct excerpts from pages 20 through 22 of the fourth edition, and I quote, Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. But what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He is a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He is seldom mildly intoxicated. He is always more or less insanely drunk. He has a positive genius for getting tight at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him. As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-power sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. 
This is by no means a comprehensive picture of a true alcoholic, as our behavior patterns vary, but this description should identify him roughly. End quote. Now, hopefully you can't relate to any of that, but unfortunately for me, I feel like he is talking about Jareth directly every time I read that passage. And my goal here isn't to label anyone or make you feel like an alcoholic if you can identify with some of those words. My goal is to give you a better understanding of the different types of drinkers and their habits, so moving forward, you'll have a better idea of the clues to be conscious of when analyzing a friend or family member, or more importantly, your own personal relationship with alcohol. Because again, I want to prevent as many people as possible from experiencing the hellacious world of alcoholism and true chemical dependency which is the perfect transition to my last topic, the importance of setting small goals and how it relates to recovery, the daily five, and as I mentioned earlier, sober October. Now, before I start, I want you to know that I believe setting big goals and having big dreams are crucial because it gives you an ultimate destination to strive for. But, as I mentioned before, you have to fall in love with the process of getting there. And the best way to fall in love with the process is to set small, achievable goals. Why? Because again, as I mentioned before, it builds your momentum. And this is critical for anyone debating a life of sobriety, especially in the beginning. If you remember from a previous episode, I started a competition within myself to see how many days I could go. The ultimate goal was forever, but I also set realistic goals. Like, okay... After treatment, I'll have 34 days. Then, if I can make it a few more weeks, I'll have 60. Then 90. Then before I know it, I'll have a year. But I kept my focus on the next day. Because each next day was more important than 90 days from that day. Because as I learned earlier, your whole life can change in a day. So focus on the present. And I stress this to anyone new to recovery or debating an alcohol-free life. Don't set unrealistic expectations or goals. If you've never tried to stop drinking, don't tell yourself, okay, I'm going to go 30 days without drinking. You may be setting yourself up for failure because remember, you want to build momentum. Start on a Monday. Why? Because the weekends are havens for drinking. The dinners, the parties, the football games, the whatevers, those are all situations where you'll really have to test your will early on. So instead of a weekend, take the path of least resistance. Start on a Monday, which is hopefully a day that you aren't typically drinking. Tell yourself you'll make it to Thursday. Then, when you get to Thursday, tell yourself you're only going to do it for another three days. You can do anything for three days. Then, before you know it, you'll have a week and see where that momentum takes you. Next, you'll have two weeks, and before you know it, you may have a month. And I promise, if you go a whole month without alcohol, you'll feel the best you've ever felt in a very long time, mentally and emotionally. And on top of that, you probably saved a bunch of money, and even better, maybe even lost some weight in the process. Hmm, do any of those benefits sound familiar to you? Uh, um, the daily five? <laughs> I mean, it's like with anything in life. Runners don't just wake up one day and run a marathon. They wake up and set a goal to run one. But in the process, they set small goals to reach the ultimate one. 
First week, I'm going to run three miles a day, then eventually six, then 13. And I don't know the real numbers, but I know it's a process. And I know they have to love the process if they ever want to achieve their goal of running the full 26 miles. And with that being said, I would encourage and challenge each of you to set a small goal this month to participate in Sober October. And if you do, I'd love to hear about it. I guarantee that nobody listening will reach out to me and say, Dude, why did you ever recommend trying to go alcohol-free for Sober October? That was a horrible idea. But... If you do, then you'll probably want to re-listen to this episode and take a closer look at your personal relationship with alcohol. As always, thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me next week when I continue my journey in sober living and tell about how I almost got kicked out of sober living. I'll also tackle the difficult question of whether an intervention is right for your loved one and further explain how the Daily Five can help fight some people's toughest battle, their anxiety and or depression. Thanks again, everyone, and I hope to see you next week on Recovery Road, the intersection of life and sobriety. (laughs) 